Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. On a chilly day in 1770, children played in the March snow outside Boston's Customs House. They packed snowballs, throwing them at each other. A few minutes later, they innocently tossed them at the eight British soldiers standing guard out front. Passersby joined in. This was an opportunity to exercise their frustrations against England. The British had enforced oppressive measures and taxes on the colonists for years. And over the next hour, that crowd grew. Church bells rang in the distance, summoning more people. Even a group of nearby dock workers joined in. It was almost as if the crowds had been riled up by some unseen force. The mob of 50 moved in on the outnumbered soldiers. Gripping their muskets and rooting their heels in the compact snow, the soldiers grew increasingly nervous. In the midst of the shouting, they could hardly hear their own thoughts. And suddenly... A shot was fired into the crowd. According to some sources, British Private Hugh Montgomery was the first to shoot. The other soldiers followed suit, discharging their muskets into the crowd. The colonists seized clubs, knives, rocks. They even used their bare hands, anything to fight back. When the dust finally settled, five American civilians were dead. And from the shadows, a man with a red cloak and white wig watched on. A man who some witnesses said had provoked the violence. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our final episode on the Sons of Liberty, a secret revolutionary organization led by some of America's most influential figures. They drummed up civil unrest and lit the fuse that exploded into the American Revolutionary War. Last week, we discussed what we know about the Sons of Liberty, Birthed out of another secret society, the Loyal Nine, the Sons rallied American colonists against Great Britain. They planned protests, some of which erupted into violence, as well as the Boston Tea Party. This week, we'll talk about some of the rumors and conspiracy theories surrounding the Sons of Liberty, like that they secretly incited the Boston Massacre. We'll explore whether they used the Boston Tea Party as a distraction for an opium smuggling scheme. And finally, we'll examine the controversial relationship between the Sons and the Native Americans. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The Sons of Liberty may be classified as a secret society, but it was no secret that they advocated for radical change in the American colonies. Their mission and goals were out in the open for all to participate in. They wanted complete separation from Great Britain. The Sun's leader, Samuel Adams, wrote multiple incendiary letters to King George III. 
Unlike the other Sons of Liberty, Samuel Adams had no problem calling for violence against the British. He knew that radical change wouldn't come easily. His threatening letters spurred Parliament to dub Adams the most dangerous man in Massachusetts and the Grand Incendiary. We don't know who exactly coined the nicknames, but one thing was clear. Adams was a political agitator, and Britain saw him as a direct threat. The problem was not all Sons of Liberty members shared his stance on violence. John Adams and John Hancock felt that bloodshed was an unnecessary measure, and they may not have authorized the things Samuel Adams said or did in the Sons' name. But the British Crown didn't care which actions the Sons of Liberty approved. In 1768, they just knew the colonists were turning against them. People smuggled goods, refused to pay taxes, and practiced civil disobedience, all thanks to the Sons of Liberty. Britain sent thousands of new soldiers to the East Coast to maintain order. The Secretary of State for the Colonies gave troops permission to use force when necessary. So if Britain was willing to do what needed to be done, Samuel Adams would do the same. He'd had enough of the Sons' timid methods. He wanted to add gas to the fire, he pressured the Boston Gazette and other newspapers to run daily stories claiming that soldiers had abused their authority. It was the quickest way to spur the colonists to violence. Soon, nearly every American paper regularly detailed British misbehavior. Even minor annoyances made front-page news and seemed to prove his point. According to an organized incident, the Boston Massacre re-examined by historian Amanda Standerfer, Samuel Adams even conjured up his own anti-Crown conspiracy theory. He claimed that the British troops planned to incite a massacre to teach Boston a lesson. Adams' propaganda worked exactly as he'd hoped. In 1769, tensions rose between the colonists and local troops. Violent bar fights were par for the course in local pubs, where both parties drank. Adams used this to spin a new tale. He claimed the rise in Boston's petty theft was due to alcoholic soldiers. So, in 1769, Britain removed two regiments from Boston. It's clear the Crown felt their troops couldn't maintain order. They were only making things worse. But reducing the soldiers' presence wasn't enough to please the colonists. They wanted every last one of them gone. Civilians tormented those who remained. Violence regularly broke out when rioters looted or vandalized stores that sold British imports. Soldiers often used force to break up mobs. On February 22, 1770, a British customs official fatally shot an 11-year-old boy during one such confrontation. The needless killing stoked the colonists' fury even further. The 1770 Boston Massacre felt inevitable, and a son of liberty may have prompted it. It occurred on March 5, 1770. A rowdy crowd gathered outside of Boston's Customs House, where the Crown's money was stored. While colonists taunted and lobbed lumps of ice at the soldiers, bells rang throughout the city. The bells weren't keeping the time. They were 18th-century fire alarms. Typically, citizens who heard the clanging rushed out of their homes to fight out-of-control blazes. But there was no fire that day. We don't know who rang the bells, but they summoned an ever-growing crowd outside, 
and they made their way to the customs house, and at one point, without warning... The soldiers opened fire. Five colonists were fatally shot in the scuffle. Afterward, eight soldiers, along with the head officer, Captain Thomas Preston, were arrested and charged with murder. Samuel Adams had gotten the massacre he'd prophesied, and afterward, he approached Sun's members and lawyers, John Adams and Josiah Quincy, with a strange suggestion. Perhaps they should defend the soldiers in court. John Adams and Josiah Quincy grappled with the proposition. They'd made sacrifices to thwart the British, but they also believed that everyone was entitled to a fair trial. After all, the soldiers were facing the death penalty. As for Samuel Adams, it's possible that he saw an opportunity for the Sons to take the moral high ground, maintain good public relations. But it's also possible that he had something to hide from the jury, and he needed John and Josiah's help to cover it up, because he might have been responsible for the Boston Massacre. Coming up the case against Samuel Adams. Now, back to the story. In 1770, the Boston Massacre gave American colonists a reason to fear and hate the British, and it had all been prophesied by Sons of Liberty member Samuel Adams. He'd long predicted that the British would incite violence against the colonists, and the Boston Massacre legitimized his stance, You'd think that he'd double down on his anti-Crown rhetoric after the confrontation, but instead he encouraged two other Sons members, John Adams and Josiah Quincy, to represent the accused British officers in court. At his request, John Adams and Josiah Quincy got to work on the case. Their plan was to give the soldiers a fair and complete trial by sticking to the facts. What happened? Who was there? What was said? They agreed to take off their Sons of Liberty caps and defend the soldiers fairly without bringing their biases into the courtroom. The trial began in October 1770. It was common for multiple judges to hear a trial, and this was no exception. Benjamin Lind, John Cushing, Peter Oliver, and Henry Trowbridge oversaw the proceedings. Meanwhile, the jury was composed of men from outside of Boston in hopes that they would be impartial. More than 80 witnesses took the stand over six days. Some of the most interesting were the seven men who watched the massacre from the home of William Hunter, a local resident with a balcony overlooking the Customs House. On the afternoon of the massacre, their friend David Mitchelson rushed into the apartment. He wanted to know if they'd noticed the disturbances outside. It hadn't escalated to violence yet, but a large mob had assembled and their agitation was apparent. Everyone rushed to the balcony. Some saw a suspicious character outside, a man in a red cloak and a white wig. Small groups of men gathered around the cloaked figure in the square below. Nobody could make out his facial features, but he was slim and tall. The man seemed to have a power over the crowd, as if he was a leader of some kind. When he spoke, the group fell silent, and everyone paid attention to his quiet instructions. The men at William Hunter's house couldn't make out what he said, but when the man finished his speech, everyone in the crowd took a step back, removed their hats, and gave three cheers for the main guard, the Crown's royal soldiers. 
and that was extremely curious. In the hour leading up to the massacre, the cloaked figure assembled two or three more crowds in the same fashion. They circled around him as he whispered his plans. Then, again, the crowd shouted, Huzzah for the main guard, which meant either the man was a loyalist, a British soldier, or a rebel, trying to throw everyone off his scent. William Hunter and three other guests corroborated reports of the tall man, his red cloak and wig, and the repeated shouts of huzzah for the main guard. But during their cross-examination, John Adams and Josiah Quincy asked very few questions about the man in the red cloak. In fact, they appeared to avoid the topic as much as possible. They never once asked if anyone recognized the man or where he went after the event, nor did they mention him in their closing arguments. But one of the judges, Peter Oliver, couldn't look past the mysterious figure. He delivered some rather unconventional closing sentiments to the jury. James Selkrig, with three others, say that before the bells rang, they saw a large number armed with different weapons. And after that, a tall man with a red cloak and white wig talked to these people, who listened to him, and then huzzahed for the main guard. That tall man is guilty in the sight of God of the murder of the five persons mentioned in the indictment. The supreme avenger of innocent blood will surely overtake him. While Oliver had identified a culprit, the cloaked figure remained a mystery. Nobody could say who he really was. Instead, the jury found two of the eight soldiers guilty of manslaughter, while the other six got off in a claim of self-defense. The case was closed. But the mystery surrounding the cloaked man continued, and a loyalist publication called the Evening Post suggested that the figure may have been Samuel Adams himself. The journalist said that men in public office often wore these red cloaks, Samuel Adams was the clerk of the Massachusetts House of Representatives at the time. Of course, Adams denied the accusations. After all, there were plenty of men in office who wanted to see British soldiers extracted from American soil. The cloaked man could have been any one of them. But Samuel Adams certainly had the motive to organize the Boston Massacre. The Sons of Liberty leveraged the event to fuel their rebellion. It turned the colonists against the British and we know that he had no problem taking violent measures when necessary. The man's shouts of huzzah for the main guard also fit this theory. When he addressed the crowd, he spoke in whispers too quiet for the witnesses at William Hunter's house to hear. But the rousing cry was repeated loudly. Given the brimming tensions between loyalists and rebels, it's unlikely someone would openly express pro-British sentiment particularly at the Customs House on that day, surrounded by an angry colonial mob. Cheering for the crowd would be an invitation to violent assault, unless that was exactly what the man wanted. Maybe he was working to ensure the upcoming fight was blamed on the Loyalists. Perhaps Samuel Adams' conspiracy theory about a British-led massacre was a self-fulfilling prophecy. He engineered the tragedy and cheered for the main guard all the while so they'd get the blame. He also encouraged John Adams and Josiah Quincy to represent the soldiers in court. Perhaps he asked them not to pry into the red-cloaked figure the witnesses mentioned. 
Unfortunately, we'll never be sure if the massacre was incited by the Sons of Liberty. It's been over 200 years since the Boston Massacre, and the identity of the man in the red cloak has been lost to time. But this wasn't the only questionable revolutionary event to involve the Sons of Liberty. History suggests that they may have had a nefarious, hidden purpose for the Boston Tea Party as well. On the evening of December 16, 1773, Sons of Liberty gathered all over Boston. They painted their faces with soot and dressed in traditional Native American garb before storming three docked ships in the Boston Harbor. The official story says that the Sons of Liberty opened the crates to expose the tea before dumping it into the water. But Spike Media's history collection suggests that the Sons of Liberty were searching for something inside those crates. They may have pocketed an expensive and dangerous good, one they knew they could resell to fund a revolution. Opium. Opium comes from the gum of opium poppy flowers, and it's the active substance in heroin. During the 18th century, physicians in the Americas and Britain alike used the drug as pain reliever. For cancer to tetanus to childbirth, prescribed opium was typically mixed into a tincture and taken orally by the patient. This was referred to as laudanum. But in the mid-1700s, doctors realized that opium was very addictive, yet there was no law against it. So surely prominent physicians and Sons of Liberty members like Dr. Joseph Warren and Dr. Benjamin Church, who would become the first Surgeon General of the U.S. Army, realized a dangerous yet unique opportunity. Opium could help them fund their cause. Especially since their rival, Great Britain, was already capitalizing on the addictive substance. China, which Britain traded with more than any other nation, grappled with widespread opioid addictions at the time. It was such a problem that the Yongzheng Emperor banned its import and sale in 1729. But Britain wasn't willing to let the opium trade fizzle out. It was a cornerstone of their economy, especially because Chinese traders preferred silver over gold. But England had very little silver in their reserves, so they used opium as an unofficial currency, and they sold lots of it. But the British-owned East India Company couldn't just show up in Chinese harbors to offload drugs. Their vessels were regularly searched at borders, and any opium on board was confiscated. They needed assistance from other countries' traders and smugglers, professionals who could fly under the radar. So American merchants helped out. The East India Company delivered opium to the colonies alongside other goods like tea and paper. From there, the product was handed over to American smugglers who resold the drug in China. At this time, opium wasn't illegal in the colonies, but in the 1770s, it was hard to come by. Britain had imposed a massive tax on it. Demand for tax-free smuggled opium skyrocketed. Some of those smugglers were Sons of Liberty members, like John Hancock, who inherited a lucrative shipping firm from his father. Hancock's family had high-level business connections. He allegedly secured a number of government contracts to transport whale oil, wine, and other general goods before the revolution. Which means Hancock may also have shipped opium to China. 
When colonists began boycotting British goods, John Hancock became one of the top smugglers in the nation. Between his business connections and the Sons of Liberty, he knew just about everything and everyone that came in and out of Boston's ports. He didn't work for the Crown anymore and no longer smuggled opium for them, but he probably knew who did. In Drugging a Nation, the story of China and the opium curse, author Samuel Mervyn explained, a pipe full of moderately good native product costs more than a laborer can earn in a day. So while we're not sure exactly how valuable opium was, we can assume it wasn't cheap. And even if some colonists had money to spend on the imported drug, they faced another problem. The Sons of Liberty had gotten many people to boycott British goods entirely. Opium was no exception. For physicians like Dr. Warren and Dr. Church, the lack of medicine made their jobs much harder. On rare occasions, they managed to smuggle some in through their Dutch connections. But it would be a lot easier if they just stole it from the enemy. Given all of that history, it's possible that the East India Company ships may have been carrying opium along with their tea. After all, Britain smuggled 2,000 chests of opium per year into China. Which is why some conspiracy theorists suggest that there may have been opium inside those 342 crates that were said to be filled with tea. And if there was opium, John Hancock probably knew about it and may have informed the other Sons of Liberty. Which would explain why the Sons of Liberty cracked open and sifted through every single box. If the goal was to simply damage the tea and render it unsellable, they could have saved time by simply throwing the entire crate overboard, unless they were looking for something inside. If the Sons of Liberty seized any opium, they probably resold it to fund their revolution. In fact, according to A Heritage of Hypocrisy by Halston Purney, two controlled products financed the war, tobacco and opium. We know that when the fighting broke out, Great Britain stopped selling weapons to the colonists. After all, they didn't want to provide the very items that would be used against them. Luckily, the rebels had a friendly ally, France. They traded cannons and gunpowder, as well as necessities like clothes and shoes. The colonists paid for the goods with drug money. And by that point, it's confirmed they weren't selling British opium anymore. Patriots grew their own poppies. They saw it as a civic duty, a way to provide painkillers to wounded soldiers, a psychedelic precursor to later generations' victory gardens. Even founding father Thomas Jefferson was known to help out. He planted poppy gardens at his Charlottesville, Virginia estate. And since opium was an addictive drug, many people got hooked. By the time the dust settled and the founding fathers began drafting the Constitution, they faced a plague of opioid addictions. Even George Washington became dependent on the drug after using it to treat his chronic gum pain. And if we trace those roots of the addiction epidemic back, we find the Sons of Liberty, who sold out the first generation of U.S. citizens to fund their revolution. Coming up, the Sons of Liberty draw on Native American traditions to advance their agenda. Now back to the story. Prior to the American Revolution, Great Britain dictated much of the culture in the colonies. 
England didn't just provide government, they exported European trends. They traded the cloth that became American fashion, the literature that became American pop culture, and the news that shaped American political thought. Even as the colonists advocated for liberty, they built on continental philosophies and values. The Sons of Liberty began to break that bond with the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre. And when the colonies separated from Britain, they sought to further evolve their culture. They wanted something they could identify with as Americans. As a result, many people, including the Sons of Liberty, took an interest in the Native American way of life, but in ways that appear questionable by today's standards. In the early 1770s, colonists in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, decided to put a new spin on May Day. May Day was a popular European holiday that celebrated the return of spring. But the colonists thought it was time for their own patron saint, a well-respected Lene Lenape chief from the Delaware Valley. He was famous for spreading kindness, friendship, and peace between the settlers and natives. He died in 1701, but myths about him lived on afterward. On Tammany Day, colonists participated in traditional Native American songs and dances. Children told stories of the historic chief. Considering the colonists meant to celebrate the Americas and deny their European roots, Tammany Day was an insult to Great Britain. That inspired the Sons of Liberty to also adopt St. Tammany as the patron saint for their society. They didn't care about Native American traditions. They used the chief's memory as a cultural signifier a way to set themselves apart from the British. In other words, it was an act of cultural appropriation. In fact, many interactions between the Sons of Liberty and the local tribes were self-serving. A few months before the Revolutionary War in January 1775, George Washington hosted a dinner attended by John Adams and several Kahnawake Mohawk chiefs. At that meeting, John Adams familiarized himself with Native American government and then later claimed those ideas were his own. The Iroquois had their own version of parliament, consisting of 50 representatives from five different tribes. They also had a council that met once a year to discuss the issues that impacted more than one of the tribes. All the tribes got to vote on each matter, and the ruling had to be unanimous in order to pass. This division of power later inspired the United States system of checks and balances. The Iroquois government also believed in holding their leaders accountable. They could remove someone from office if they had reasonable cause. This idea inspired constitutional provisions like impeachment. The Sons of Liberty didn't only co-opt the Native Americans' governmental structure. They drew from Iroquois art, history, and tradition in their publications and they didn't always bother with accuracy or cultural sensitivity. The idea that they embodied traditional American values was more important than actually living out those beliefs. In 1777, the Continental Congress took things one step further when they issued a pamphlet to France requesting their support. The document detailed traditional Native American values. It's unclear today how accurate the text was, but it included an alleged ancient Iroquois prophecy and said it was coming true. It spoke of two beasts fighting for control of native soil. The pamphlet suggested the beasts were Great Britain and the colonists. The prophecy said that in the end, the better beast won. 
The premonition also said the better beast would allow the Native Americans to return to their traditional lifestyle, which obviously wasn't how things played out. Instead, during the Revolutionary War, the Iroquois Confederacy divided and tribes fought one another. Many sided with the British after they were attacked by the same colonists who once celebrated them. Meanwhile, the tribes were ravaged by the diseases soldiers brought with them. When the war finally ended, they lost a majority of their land and weren't offered any money or help to rebuild their society. The Sons of Liberty members who once celebrated Iroquois culture now turned their backs. They were busy establishing a new nation, and the Native Americans suffered further abuses at the hands of the government they'd helped create. As for the Sons of Liberty, they probably dissolved during the Revolution, but that didn't stop other offshoots from forming. The Sons of King Tammany appeared in Philadelphia. The Tamina Society, also called the Columbian Order, formed in New York. Each built on the foundations of their predecessor, the Sons of Liberty, while leaning more heavily into Native American traditions and themes. They didn't bother with political organization. They exploited Native American culture to have a good time. On May 1st, 1783, the Sons of King Tammany in Philadelphia organized a parade and a day of festivities. Members dressed as Native Americans, the secretary of the fraternal organization asked the so-called warriors to assemble for the ceremonial burying of the hatchet. Later, a cannon fired and a band played Yankee Doodle Dandy. A six-foot peace pipe with 13 painted feathers and stars was packed with tobacco and passed around the crowd of hundreds, which suggests that the ceremony may have been open to more than just society members. Together, they all drank, sang, and celebrated their freedom, a freedom the Native Americans had paid the price for. And these celebrations happened in numerous major U.S. cities, from Savannah, Georgia, to Richmond, Virginia. Today, the parties would certainly be roundly condemned for their insensitive stereotypes. But at the time, the faux Native American practices were almost synonymous with American pride. The nation's founding fathers, like John Madison and Thomas Jefferson, appealed to voters because of their relationships with Native American leaders. The fact that they also supported racist policies that harmed American tribes didn't raise many eyebrows. Benjamin Franklin, Benjamin Rush, and John Dickinson became members of the Tammany Societies. Group members rallied around Jefferson and Madison and established their new political party, the Democratic Republicans precursor to today's Democrats. Unlike the Sons of Liberty, the Tammany Societies were social clubs. They had many Democratic-Republican members, but weren't officially associated with any party or a political movement. They didn't formally advance agendas or organize protests, and the lack of focus left them with little influence, and even less staying power. Eventually, the Tammany societies fell out of favor as pleasure seekers sought out trendier ways to celebrate. It seems the Sons of Liberty and their offshoots all eventually disappeared, but the effects of their actions lived on. The Sons may have shaped the current political climate more than we realize. After all, they drafted the American Constitution. And sure, they were offensive, corrupt, possibly even violent. But maybe all these are key ingredients in the American Revolution. 
If they'd chosen to play by the rules, the Revolutionary War might have played out very differently. For good or for ill, the Sons of Liberty set the tone for modern political movements, like the women's suffrage movement, which began in 1848, or the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, led by Baptist minister Dr. Martin Luther King, or the gay rights movement beginning in 1969. It's during these times of civil unrest that history repeats itself, and the Sons of Liberty laid the foundation that helped inspire future change. Like it or not, their spirit lives on. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. For more information on the Sons of Liberty, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book Defiance of the Patriots by Benjamin Karp extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.